While you're turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16, I'll share with you a a quote that sounds familiar but is slightly changed. Man shall not live on welfare alone. (laughs) The human being, the human soul, it needs so much more to really live than just food to eat and a place to live. And perhaps we live in such a rich time where through taxes and through government, everyone can have a enough food to eat and have shelter, a place to live, a bed to sleep in. But that doesn't mean that everyone is is really alive, that everyone is really living. Man shall not live on welfare alone. But what we need is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's what our role is here in the world, is to provide food for the soul for all who are hungry. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, drink freely of what God has provided and I'm thankful that God has brought each one of you here this morning to come and and drink of the waters and to eat of the food that God has prepared for us in his holy word. So we come to our final message here in Romans chapter 16 and it's been a, a wonderful study for me. If there's any review of this book that you would like to do, well, the whole series, and I think it's about 74 messages, is on the, the website, our church website, as well as on sermonaudio.com. And it's a wonderful time we live in where you can be fed the Word of God through the recordings of many faithful preachers, and that's all at your fingertips any time, any day of the week. What a blessed time to live in. Technology has certainly brought its downside, but it has also certainly provided a lot of good, and we want to make good use of what God has given to us. Now, last week we were looking into Romans chapter 16, and we saw that we are called to mark and avoid false teachers because they are truly dangerous. We looked into verses 17 and 18, and and then we ran out of time to get to verses 19 and 20, so we're going to be picking up where we left off. If man lives on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, if the soul of man requires the truth about God in order to live a life that is righteous and wise and produces good fruit, well then of course the greatest threat, the greatest danger to mankind is not starvation, physically speaking, a a lack in the food supply, but the greatest threat is to be led astray by spiritual deceptions and lies about God. For when we believe falsehood, we will live in sin. And when we live in sin, we reap the results of that lifestyle, and that is death. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, as we've learned in Paul's letter to the Romans, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we come to the word about Jesus Christ, the preaching of Jesus Christ, and we also are warned about the danger of false teachers. Now, we are supposed to be the most warm and welcoming people in the world. As Christ has welcomed us, we extend that welcome to all who are seeking the spiritual food and the spiritual drink that God has provided for the world in Christ. But as we are warm and welcoming towards all who are seeking, we must be careful to protect and guard the treasure that God has entrusted to us so that false teachers do not come in and corrupt the message of the truth that has been once for all delivered to the saints. If we are not on our guard, if we do not stand watchful, 
if we do not keep the purity of God's word in our local church, then where will people go to hear the truth? There's no plan B. There's no second option. There is only the local church. And if the local church does not stand, then where is the pillar and support of the truth? So we see how important our role is in the world and therefore how we need to be on guard against all of those who would undo the work that God is doing. That's why we have words like this in 2 John. We've looked at it the last two weeks and I wanted you to see it one more time where it says in God's word, if anyone comes to you, church, if anyone comes to this church and does not bring the teaching of the apostles, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The ministry of the truth that is given to the church is the most important ministry in the world today. And so it is out of love for God, love for one another, and love for the lost world that needs the light of God that we shun those who would profess to be proclaimers of truth, but who are in fact servants of the enemy. Now, we want to always give false teachers a warning. I wanted to remind you of this verse as well in Titus chapter 3, verse 10. As for a person who stirs up division, now who causes division? Is it the preacher of God's word who points out when people are going astray? Is that the person who is dividing? No. Picture it this way. You've got a whole flock of God's sheep that he's brought in together under one shepherd, Jesus Christ. And he's got under-shepherds who are responsible for different parts of that flock. Now it's one flock with one shepherd. Now suppose one of those shepherds starts leading in a direction that is contrary to the will of the great shepherd revealed to us in the Bible. Is it the shepherds who are calling out that shepherd who is leading his flock away from God's word and God's truth who are causing division? No, it is not. It is they who are pointing out the division that is being caused by taking the sheep away from Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. So think clearly, think accurately. Don't allow Satan to confuse you and think that, oh, it's those fighting fundamentalists who are always causing division. No, it is those who are preaching the truth who are keeping the flock together, united under Jesus Christ. And it is those who promote error who openly defy the commandments of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. They are the ones who are causing division and leading God's precious sheep astray. So, as for a person who stirs up division, Paul wrote to Titus, after warning him once and then twice, just as Jesus gave us instruction, that with any error, you go to your brother, you tell him, if he listens to you, great, If he doesn't, you take one or two more with you so that every matter can be confirmed by two or three witnesses. And if he doesn't listen, then you tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, then you have nothing more to do with him. You mark and avoid those who are walking contrary to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And especially is this important when dealing with false teachers who are not just ruining themselves, but are actively trying to ruin the walk of the Lord of many of God's sheep. So let's talk a little bit about the dangers of false teachers. Look in Romans chapter 16. Let's read verses 17 and 18 once again this morning. It says this, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for, that is to mark them, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles 
contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Anyone who comes up with something new and different from what has been taught, we have to mark them. They are causing a division. And we are to avoid them. Paul gives the reason in verse 18. The word for is an important word in any text. It explains why. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. As we talked about last week, the Word of God is able to judge the heart of mankind. And we find throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament that God's servants did proclaim the evil motives of those who were seeking to turn people away from God's Word. And so I thought Hebrews 4.12 would be a good reminder. While, yes, you don't know everything about every individual's heart motives, that's something that only God knows, at the same time, the Word of God does judge the motives of those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to what we have been taught. We are told in this text, in Romans 16.18, that they do not serve Christ. They do not have good intentions towards Christ, but in fact, they are serving their own appetites. And so, Hebrews 4.12 reminds us, the Word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so when we open up our Bibles and find out what are the thoughts and intentions in the heart of those who teach contrary to what is in the Bible, we find out. Greed, pleasure, honor. That's what is in the heart motivating those who teach falsehood. Greed, pleasure, and honor. You can take a picture of the slide and look up those verses if you like. We have a lot to cover this morning and we have communion to get to, so for time's sake, we're going to just put the verses there and you can follow up with your own study. Paul warns us about those who do not serve our Lord Christ that they have smooth talk and flattery. That is, they have just the right words. They are excellent public speakers and they present themselves as a very charismatic, a very likable type of person. And so with their smooth talk and their flattery, you don't know it's flattery. It just sounds like it's really good. And they deceive the hearts of who? They deceive the hearts of the naive. Now, this word naive is actually very similar to the word for innocent. You could translate it in some contexts as innocent, and, and here is naive. Because the people who are innocent, like little children, they are often naive. They don't know about all of the evil that is in the world. And I talked about this last week, how those who have good intentions, those who want to love others and do what's best for others, we can be a little bit naive and we can start to think that that's the way everyone is. And no, that's not the way everyone is. The human heart is desperately sick. In fact, when God sent the flood upon the earth, he said that every intention of the thought of the heart of man was only evil continually. So instead of being naive and thinking, oh, I'm sure that everyone has my best interest at heart, I'm sure that when the person on television says they're just looking out for my best interest, I'm sure that's what they're really doing, don't be naive. Don't be so innocent. Now, in one sense, we are supposed to be innocent. We're supposed to be innocent of doing any evil. 
But in this sense, we're not supposed to be innocent so far that we are naive. These two often go together. We are a trusting, big-hearted, welcoming people, and the enemy will use that strength against us. And so that's why the Lord Jesus Christ gave us instruction. This is instruction from your Lord to you. He says, behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Don't think that everyone in the world is a sheep. Don't think that everyone in the world is harmless. Don't think that everyone in the world is, is trying to do what's best and, and honor God. They're not. They're wolves. And so, as sheep in the midst of wolves, be wise. Be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. So here's our word innocent, right? Same word. So we're supposed to be innocent, but we're not supposed to be naive. We're supposed to be wise like a serpent. We should have cunning. God's people are supposed to be cunning, not in an evil sense like Satan is cunning, but in a good sense with the wisdom that God gives us to be on our guard, to be not unsuspecting, but properly suspecting of those who show themselves by their deeds, by their words, to be enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. I have a quote here from a commentator, Everett Harrison, and In his commentary on this passage, I really liked what he said. He said, religious errorists, and of course I I don't think that's an actual word, errorist, but it works. Religious errorists covet opportunities for friendly discussion. They've got the smooth talk. They've got the flattery. They're just looking for the opportunity to dialogue. We just want a good faith dialogue on, on some difficult issues confronting the church. False teachers love that type of opportunity, because they can deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. And when I look out on the church, I see, not not talking about you guys, but talking about the church in general, when I look out on the church in general, I see a lot of unsuspecting. I see a lot of naive. I see a lot of people that are open to deception, and they hear those words, and it sounds good, and they don't see what the harm is in it, and they think, well, good intentions, it's all going to work out and then they are led away from the simplicity of devotion to Christ. So don't give an opportunity to the religious errorist to have a friendly discussion in the church. We have the example of Jesus Christ and his apostles to not have friendly discussion with religious errorists, but to insult them to their face and to publicly expose them for the evil and destructive work that they're doing. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, He calls the religious errorists there dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. And he chose each of those epithets. He deliberately chose those insults because they would be most offensive to the false teachers that he was talking to. They called other people dogs. They called other people evildoers. They called themselves the true circumcision. But Paul takes everything that they were proud of and turns it against them to show what they really are. And so we have to have that kind of courage, we have to have that kind of boldness to be able to denounce evil for what it is and to not be cowards as so many Christian preachers are. The apostles and their Lord were not cowardly in confronting religious errorists. Now, as we continue on, we see in verses 19 and 20, Paul is rejoicing in the obedience that he sees and hears about in the church at Rome. 
And this is not something that is unique to this situation, but Paul also mentions it to another church that he had not personally visited, how he'd heard about their obedience and how he was so full of joy because of it, as he wrote to the Colossians in chapter 2, verse 5. And it reminds me also of what John wrote in his third letter, verse 4, where he said, I have no greater joy. Think about that. Now, the Apostle John, a very joyful, loving man, he said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So he was a spiritual father. He looked at his disciples as spiritual children. And to see those spiritual children walking in the truth brought him great joy. I was privileged to be at a 50th wedding anniversary last night. And there was a time for open mic where people could talk about their memories of the couple. And one after another, people who had been discipled by this couple stood up and and gave testimony for what a big difference they made in their life with their godly example, with their testimony, with their biblical counsel. And to be able to see the joy that this couple had because of these spiritual children and physical children that they had who were walking in the truth because of their ministry. And that's what you want. You want to get to the end of your life and have that joy of having discipled people and seeing them walk in the truth. You know, you're not too young to be discipling people, young people in the church. Older folks in the church, you're not too old to be discipling people. That's what the church is here for. We're making disciples. And it's not just the preacher's job to make disciples, but the command is to all Christians. And with the spiritual gifts, the wisdom that God has given to you, be speaking truth in love with one another, making disciples and strengthening the disciples in the faith. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth and to have God bless the work that we're doing together. And so Paul is rejoicing as he says. Let's read verses 19 and 20. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in his closing words, he gives this warning to mark and avoid false teachers. He talks about how dangerous the false teachers are. Then he rejoices in their obedience and talks about the victory that we're going to have in Christ. Let's take a closer look at verse 19 and see the joy that Paul has in the obedience. Now, their obedience is threatened by these false teachers. And so that's why he's mentioning the joy that he has in their obedience and why he's giving the command to be on guard against those who cause divisions and teach contrary to the doctrine that the apostles taught. And so as he's rejoicing over them, he's giving them that warning one more time at the end of the verse, 19, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So there's a good kind of innocence that we have here. This is a different word from what we had before concerning innocence in the previous verses, the naive. And this verse has the idea of being unlearned, unskilled, unsophisticated. So you don't have much training in doing evil. You don't have a lot of experience in doing evil. And that's what false teaching will do. It'll, it'll give you training and experience in how to do what is displeasing to God. But true teaching gives you the expertise. That would be a good word here for wise. I want you to be an expert. I want you to have expertise in doing good. Just like we were talking about earlier, some of the good works that you all are doing this summer, whether it's working at camp, taking meals to one another, doing personal visitations writing letters, rejoicing together and celebrating. All that good works, I want you to be an expert in that. 
God wants you to be an expert in that. But when it comes to what is wrong and what is evil, we should be very inexperienced and very naive. You know, blessed are the children who don't get dirty jokes. They hear a dirty joke and they're like, I don't get it. Blessed are those children. We want children who are naive in what is evil. And we ourselves, as grown-ups, we also want to be innocent and pure in that sense. Not having our minds in what is evil, what is displeasing to God, but instead being filled with goodness. And that's why what is taught from God's Word is so essential and so important for maintaining true holiness and purity in God's sight. Now, the Israelites in ancient times had the opposite problem. And Jeremiah, he lamented, God lamented, where he spoke through the prophet and said, My people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil, but how to do good they know not. This verse may well have been in Paul's mind as he was writing Romans chapter 16, verse 19. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Here we are, new covenant believers with the law of God written in our hearts. And instead of being like foolish, disobedient Israel in ancient times who were wise in doing evil and didn't know how to do good, let us be wise in doing good and let us have no idea how to do evil. That would be a wonderful position to be in. Now he ends then in verse 20, this section, with our victory in Christ. As he's talking about false teachers, as he's talking about the danger that they pose, he wants to express his confidence in God's ability to keep us from the evil one and for reminding us, he wants to remind us of the ultimate victory that God is going to have over Satan. So yes, we want to be aware of Satan. We want to be aware of his devices and and his evil methods and the men that he has and women, who are leading people astray through false teaching. But don't get so focused on Satan and his dastardly deeds that you forget to rejoice in the victory of God, the victory of God in Christ that is about to be revealed. Yes, we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. Yes, there is spiritual warfare going on, and we must be faithful to stand true in this evil day. But the evil day is far spent. The new day, the good day, is at hand that Jesus Christ is waiting at any moment to break into history and to come and be with us once again. For the wisdom of God, as we sang about, to come and set all things right. The wisdom of God is coming, and he's going to set all things right. And so Paul reminds us in verse 20, the God of peace. The world is full of no peace. There is no peace for the wicked, is what Isaiah lamented. But the God of peace, the one who is the God of wisdom, he's going to bring that peace, and that's in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who just as he came the first time to save us from sin, he's coming the second time in order to establish a world in justice, a world in righteousness, a world in peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. But in order to establish that time of peace, where you will be at home, where you will be at rest, where you will finally fit in and not be the outcast of society, but instead you will be ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ, in order for that to happen... The enemy must be crushed. The enemy must be defeated. The prince of the power of the air, who is blinding the minds of the unbelievers, who is leading people in rebellion against God and against his Christ, he must be defeated and crushed once for all. And that's what Paul is looking forward to. And what does he say? It's going to happen soon. It's going to happen soon. Are you tired of the evil in the world? 
Are you tired of Satan and his lies? Are you tired of hearing lies constantly and blasphemies against God? Are you tired of wickedness being exalted in high places while the righteous are cast out? Are you tired of it? It's not going to happen for much longer. Satan's time is very short. Just hold on. We're in the last hour of the night. The God of peace, not the God of confusion, not the God of evil, not the God of deception and lies as Satan is, the God of peace is going to crush Satan. And notice how Paul says it. He's going to crush him under your feet. What do you think Paul means by that? How is God going to crush Satan under your feet? Well, Christ is in us. Christ dwells in us. And the spiritual warfare that we're accomplishing now is we're standing our ground. We stand firm, taking up the whole armor of God so that we can resist in the evil day. But that doesn't mean that we're going to be able to drive Satan out in this evil day. Satan has his time. He has his power. We're not going to take over all the institutions of the world and and establish righteousness and godliness in this age. But soon, God will establish righteousness and peace in this world. There will be no government in this world that is not under the rule of Jesus Christ. There will be no people in this world who acknowledge and bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's going to allow us to be the ones who are establishing that in the age to come. That we will be the government. We will be the leaders. We'll be making just and righteous laws and we'll be doing an even better job than we could do now because we'll be perfect. We'll be glorified. We'll be completely sanctified. This is hope. This is joy. You know, we look forward to the future. We don't fear the future. God is going to crush Satan under our feet. I think this looks forward to the millennium. Thousand years reigning with Jesus Christ in resurrected bodies, Satan bound in the abyss, and all the darkness, all the lies, all the evil, it'll be gone because God will be crushing Satan under our feet. Now he ends in verse 20 with a benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the elders, as they read through Romans chapter 16, we had breakfast this week, they had a good question. They said, Timothy, what happened to verse 24? Because if you look down at verse 23, you've got Cordus greeting you, and then it goes to verse 25. Where's verse 24? Well, in the history of the book of Romans, there were some shenanigans going on. In the second century, there was an evil heretic named Marcion, and he liked the apostle Paul enough to build his religion on Paul's writings, but he didn't like the Old Testament He didn't like a lot of what was in the New Testament. And so he heavily edited the Bible and he threw away the Old Testament. He only took Paul's letters and Luke's gospel and he edited those of anything he didn't like. And so the end of the book of Romans got a little shuffled around in the history of the church. And what you had end up happening through many different means as texts are copied and recopied is that the the greeting or the blessing at the end of verse 20, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, sometimes it would be there at the end of verse 20, and sometimes it would be after verse 23. And so if you open your King James Version, which is based on the later text, it has it in both places, because that was what the scribes did, and because they didn't know which was the right place for it, because it had been shuffled around. And so the scribes said, well, we'll just put it in both places, because you can't have too much grace of Christ being with you. 
And then we discovered later uh, in history, after the King James was written, more ancient texts that helped us to see that most likely the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you was at the end of verse 20 and that it was not after verse 23. And so they took it out of the Greek text and then modern translations therefore took it out also. So the numbering of the text goes back before we had the textual knowledge to be able to know exactly what was the right place for this benediction. That's why you don't have a verse 24. If you did have a verse 24, it would say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, which is a great verse as well. Now, as I want to wrap things up this morning, let's also take a brief look at verses 25 to 27 in our text this morning. Here you have the final doxology in the book of Romans. Now, it's somewhat unusual for Paul to conclude his letters with a doxology, and so some people have wondered if this is an original part of the book, that maybe it ended with the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ being with you in verse 24, and that some later scribe came and added this on. But I don't think so. From my study of this text and what others have helped me with, those who have studied it in depth that I utilize their work and their research, We think this was an original part of the book of Romans, and it ties in perfectly with the opening verses of Paul's letter to the Romans with so many of the ideas and themes that we read in our scripture reading in Romans 1, 1 through 17 this morning. So let's read the doxology here, beautiful verses. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. A doxology means a word of praise. And this word of praise to God is full of wonderful ideas. The praise is to God the Father, as we see there in verse 27, through Jesus Christ. Now, the rest of it tells us why we are giving praise and glory to God the Father. And I love how it starts off there in verse 25 with, Him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. God is able. That is an important concept. You know, you can talk about the all-powerful, almighty God, And yet, it's important to recognize that the all-power and all-might of God is not just theoretical power, but it is actual power, and to think about how it affects us in our lives. You know, it's easy to talk about God and believing in Him and His power, but to actually trust in His power, to actually live in the truth that He is able to strengthen you, He is able to establish you according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Notice, not only do we need faith that God is able to strengthen and establish us, but we need to understand how is it that God is going to strengthen and establish us. And this verse tells us that. It's according to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Paul is the preaching of Jesus Christ. As Paul went around proclaiming his gospel, well, the gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is just explaining Paul's gospel. And Paul's gospel is not just Paul's gospel, but it's also Peter's gospel and John's gospel and James' gospel and Lord Jesus Christ's gospel because they all got it from Jesus Christ. But Paul has been proclaiming throughout this letter 
the gospel that he's been entrusted with. So he ends the letter with a reference to my gospel. And of course, as they've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, as this relatively long letter was read to the church and then read again and then read again down through the history of the church in Rome and everywhere else where this was spread. And as we're reading it here today, our church has been strengthened. We've been established in the truth by the gospel of the Apostle Paul, the preaching of Jesus Christ. And that's what we've been doing for the last two years as we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through Paul's letter to the Romans. We've been establishing you. We've been strengthening you in your faith in Jesus Christ. And as you grow stronger, you're able to stand against the devil. You're able to do what is right. You're able to bear fruit for God. And you're able to bring honor and glory to God be the glory through Jesus Christ. So do you believe that the preaching of God's word is able to strengthen you in your soul, to establish your faith and build you on the truth. That's important. Then the second part of the doxology talks about the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been made known to all nations and through the prophetic writings. It's been disclosed not only through the apostolic preaching that Jesus Christ has come, This revelation of the mystery is the incarnation of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the blessings of the new covenant, the Gentiles and Jews becoming one body in Jesus Christ. It's it's all of this wonderful work that God has done at the end of the ages in Christ, and it was kept secret. But that doesn't mean it was a complete secret. But you see here that not only have the apostles and Jesus Christ disclosed this secret, with the writing of the New Testament and the apostolic preaching, but also the prophetic writings, which I think is a reference back to the Old Testament scriptures. So you can not only hear Jesus and the apostles preach about this amazing thing that God has done, but you can go back and you can read about how God predicted it and the clues and the hints that he was laying out throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures to prepare us for this great unveiling, this great revelation of this mystery. When Paul talks about a mystery, he's talking about something that wasn't known until God made it known. Like you're reading a mystery novel and you're not supposed to be able to know who done it until you get to the end of the novel and they reveal to you who done it. Well, that's the way it was with God's word. That there were things that we would never know, we would never discover, we'd never figure out until the right time when God reveals it, he makes it known, and we know who done it. And so, the apostolic preaching the Old Testament scriptures, this is how God has revealed what we need to know about salvation. And then finally, the last part of the phrase here, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And here, I want to back up to the slide I had before and show you how do we glorify God. Here, the prayer, the doxology, is that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so, Through this doxology and through other passages as well, I've made a partial list, not an exhaustive list, of how is it that we go about glorifying God. And number one, if you want to be a person who glorifies God, say to yourself, I want to be a person who glorifies God. If you want to be that person, then you have to give thanks to him every day, every chance and opportunity you get. You wake up in the morning and you have your personal devotions and instead of saying, God, I'm complaining about this, I'm complaining about that, and I really need help here and do this, Spend some time giving thanks to God. 
You're not going to glorify God only by making requests or complaints. It's good to go to God with everything, but go to God with thanksgiving. That is a great way to honor, to glorify God. And then secondly, you want to praise God for his attributes. When you're giving thanks to God, what I mean is that you are remembering all that he's done. And you're giving thanks for all that he's done. But we don't just glorify God by remembering what he's done, but we glorify God by remembering who he is. Who he is and what he's done. That's why I make a distinction here between giving thanks and praising his name. Third, you need to be a person who's filled with wisdom so that you can do what's right. If you're a person who gives thanks to God for everything and you praise him for his attributes, but you don't know how to live well, you don't know how to live wisely, and you end up doing lots of evil in your life, well, that's not someone who's doing a great job of glorifying God. So you've got to be doing more than just the giving thanks to him. You need to be filled with wisdom and you need to be doing what is right. And that's very clear throughout Scripture that we glorify God in that way. Because we represent him. How can God be glorified if his people are being foolish and doing what's evil? That's a poor representation of God. does not glorify him. Number four, you welcome and love one another. So we're not just doing what's right and then looking down on everyone who's not doing what's right, but we're doing what's right and we're welcoming and loving one another with patience, with instruction, forgiving one another, bearing with one another. So sometimes you find people who are doing what's right who are very intolerant of people who are, are not doing what's right. But we need to be patient and kind with all and be welcoming one another. Fifth, you trust him. So we're giving thanks, we're praising him, but then also you are praying to God and asking him for what God alone can do and what God alone can give. And that glorifies him. When you trust in God and then he comes through, he's glorified. He's shown to be somebody who's trustworthy. Now, if there's nobody in the world that's trusting him, they doesn't have an opportunity to come through and show that he's worthy of trust. So you need to be the person in the world who is trusting God like no one else, and you'll be bringing glory to God like no one else. You trust God by trusting in his promises, trusting in his word. You can't trust God for something that he never promised or that he never said. And then number six, you seek and save the lost. So you've got the one another, you've got a relationship to God, you've got also our relationship to the world, and God is glorified in the salvation of the lost. And so if you do these six things, if you give thanks to him, if you praise his name, if you're filled with wisdom and living in your life what is right and welcoming one another and loving one another and trusting God and seeking to save the lost, then you will be a person who glorifies God and you will be able to pray this prayer with a sincere heart to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. May it be so among us.